Second Corinthians tonight. Let's turn to Second Corinthians, right about the middle of chapter five, is where we left off. Who knows whenever we left off? I get so confused on Wednesday nights. I'm gone half the time. Just before the study tonight, as as the worship just was kicking off. I had never done this, so I wanted to see. I started walking around this campus now that we have over into the high school area where we have hundreds of kids meeting. They have their own worship band. They're meeting for Bible study over on the other side of the skate park where the Plex is, where the junior high kids are meeting, a couple hundred of them with their own worship team, worship band, etc. And uh, just thanking God for the ministry that's going on all at one time in one evening and then, you know, past the radio stations as I went thinking, Lord, you've been so good. We have two radio stations. One is broadcasting this live right now throughout a good portion of this state. And just I stand in amazement at what God has just decided to do. And um, speaking of ministry, that's what Paul is speaking of in these chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6, what it is to serve the Lord. Now, a Christian without a ministry is a contradiction. When you think of ministry, don't think of robes, collar, pulpit, ranting and raving as a televangelist, not that they all do, but uh, don't think of that only as ministry. Ministry is simply being a servant of the Lord, serving Him, serving His body with the gifts you have. There are people in our school of ministry who are around tonight. There are many of you who have gone through our school of ministry. Many of the people on the worship team have. All with a desire to serve the Lord, to serve His people. No greater thrill in life than to know that you're an instrument of some kind, a servant of some kind. You know what it's like when you get to speak to somebody. They ask you a question maybe at work. a a biblical question, and you get to talk to them, and afterwards you go, that was cool. Especially if you get to pray with that person to receive Christ. There's just nothing better. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul the Apostle opens his heart in one of the most personal explanations of what it is to serve the Lord. And he asks that the Corinthians also be as open with him. He will say in chapter 6, our our mouth is wide open, our heart is wide open. Open your heart to us. Before we jump in, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ministry that you've called every one of us to. We all have certain gifts. We all have certain talents that seem to fit along with those gifts. And we want to be faithful, Lord, to exercise those gifts in a way that would glorify you and please you. If, if we can just have that assurance that our lives are pleasing to you, we'll be so satisfied. Lord, you've opened your heart to us. You've included us as your brothers As the scripture says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. Thank you, Lord, that we are co-laborers with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, peek ahead then before we finish chapter 5 to chapter 6, verse 1. Speaking of ministry, we then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I love that. Paul doesn't say you're workers for him, you're workers with him. He doesn't just say, go on out there alone and do the job I've told you to do. Just obey. He says, let's go together. I'll be with you wherever you are until the end of the age. We'll be co-laborers together in the ministry. So that wherever you are, whatever you do, you don't have to feel, I'm alone, I'm isolated, nobody sees, nobody cares, nobody's doing this with me. How come nobody else in the church sees this need? I'm the only one. Who cares if you're the only one? The Lord's with you. You're laboring with Him. Workers together with Him. Paul will go on to say in this section that the ministry serving the Lord is not a cakewalk. It's not easy. It's a thrill. It's exciting. There's nothing better. But it is not easy. Even though it's not easy, he still does it. He loves it. But when Paul speaks of the ministry, as I said, he speaks with such graciousness, such open-heartedness. He's not as someone who would stand above people and yell down at them, you filthy, rotten sinners. But he would plead with them, as he says at the end of chapter 5, pleading with them to be reconciled to God. Let's be, let's be reconciled. Let's remove the obstacles between God and us. God has done that. Don't let anything stand in the way of that relationship. He entreats them with a heart of compassion and a heart of love. Now, in going through this section, I can only infer by some of Paul's language that, that not everybody liked Paul at the churches. Now, I know that's hard for us to believe. We think, oh, Paul, man, everybody, when he walked by, just went, that's I want to touch him. But a lot of people didn't like Paul. They thought he was too strong. He was too fundamental. Absolutely they thought that way. There were groups within the church, and I'll explain as we go along, who couldn't handle some of Paul's teachings. Some didn't like his doctrine of grace, that you just believe in Jesus Christ. And you're justified completely by His grace through your faith. That's too easy, they said. Some of these groups were Gnostics. I'll explain in a few moments. Some of them were very legalistic. He's too harsh. He's too narrow, they said. Well, look at verse 11 of chapter 5. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory on our behalf, that you may have something to answer to those who glory in appearance and not in heart. Again, I I just see what Paul is hinting at, that the Corinthians have to defend Paul before a group of outsiders 
who have come into the church at Corinth and are talking down at Paul, who glory in appearance. Well, where's Paul from? What are his credentials? Where did he go to seminary? Those kinds of issues. They make a show of outward appearance. Now, it's interesting that though we don't have a description of what Paul looked like from the Bible, we have a few sources, historical sources, that say that Paul was a very short man and and an odd-looking guy, that he had a bald head, was just under five feet, about 4'11", that he had large knit eyebrows, protruding eyeballs, a hook nose. I don't know if you've ever seen the old movies of Marty Feldman, (laughs) but the ancient description sounds a lot like Marty Feldman with a little more weight on, and that Paul was bold-legged. And Paul makes reference to this. His appearance is weak, they say, but his speech is strong when he's absent from you. They glory in appearance. And so Paul is simply answering the critics and giving the Corinthians some some answers, some defense. For if we are beside ourselves, if we're nuts, they were accusing Paul of that. It's not the first time. They accused Jesus of that and Paul of that. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all died. That is, in Christ, those who are his. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet no longer we know him, or we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, Paul loved that term, didn't he? That phrase, he used it a lot, in Christ, in him, in whom. I decided to count them. Eighty-seven times in Paul's writings, he speaks about being in Christ. Altogether, if you count in Christ, in whom, in him, all referring to the same in Christ, a hundred and thirty times. Now that is a great description of a true Christian. What is a Christian? It's somebody who's in Christ. He's in union with Christ. He's in communion with Christ. And because you are, you are in God's eyes, placed in Christ, that means that all of his righteousness, all of his riches, all of his resources are at your disposal. 
that the Father looks upon you with the righteousness of His Son. He knows you're not perfect. I know you're not perfect. But you're in Christ. You're in Him. If any man is in Christ that is born again, a Christian, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Old things have passed away. Your old life, your old manner of life. When you were born, physically, you were D-O-A, dead on arrival. You say, no, I wasn't. I was very much alive. I, I cried when I came out of the womb. I was named. Everybody was happy. I was alive. Oh, but spiritually, you were dead on arrival. Dead in trespasses and sins. Dead by nature. It was passed on from Adam. Then you grew of age and you made your own choices. Then you were a sinner not only by nature but by choice. Oh, that's right. You were. You, you chose to do sinful things. In fact, all children learn that naturally. They don't have to be taught that externally. A parent has never had to say, You know, son... You're just too perfect. You need to lie a little bit. You need to make excuses to be lazy a little more. You need to take things that don't belong to you because I find you're just sinless. No, parents are in the role of correcting children. And that's what Paul said. And you, Ephesians 2, he made alive who were once dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's whom? Satan. And you were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Then you were born again, born a second time, because Jesus said, unless you are born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And when you were born again, you were placed in Christ, you were given a new nature. Essentially, you're a new creation. Some of you felt that immediately. Some of you didn't. When I prayed to receive Christ in 1973 on that summer afternoon in Northern California, I didn't feel any lightning. I didn't see the heavens open and go, Oh, I'm tingling now. I didn't feel anything. (laughs) The only thing I felt, if I was going to say I felt anything, was as if a burden of guilt had been lifted. Because for the first time I understood the gospel, that he wanted to wipe away all my sins. Then as I read the revelation of God, I understand, oh, I'm a new creation. But i got to tell you, I was looking for a term to describe what happened to me. I I, I felt this burden of guilt had lifted. I felt brand new, but I, I didn't know how to tell my friends what had happened to me. See, if I told them, I'm saved, they go, were you drowning? And so I didn't know the term born again was in the Bible. I hadn't read the Bible. About a week after I prayed to receive Christ, a friend of mine, a well-meaning friend who still thought I was a pagan because he knew my past, spotted me. And he said, have you been born again? And I said, stop, where did you get that phrase? What phrase? Born again. 
He goes, what do you mean where did I get? Jesus said, you must be born again. John chapter 3. I said, that's perfect. (laughs) That's exactly what I feel happened to me. I feel as if I've been born again. Like I have a whole new life. A whole new lease on life. A whole new reason for life. And then he showed me this. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, it says, all things have become new. All things have become new. Consider what has become new in your life since you received Christ. Number one, you have a new status before God. What is that status before God? You're justified, Romans chapter 5 tells us. Justified. That is, God treats you as if you are righteous. God looks at you just if I'd never sinned. It's not like God wears blinders and doesn't see who you really are. It is that God has chosen to deal with you based upon a past act of history, the cross. That act of his son on the cross dying for you can wipe away your sins to the extent that God looks at you as if you're sinless. You're justified. So you have a new status before God. Second, you have a new relationship with God's people. I remember when Christians would would tell me about Jesus, and some of them I liked, but some of them, frankly, I didn't. And I honestly thought one of the reasons I don't want to become a Christian is because I'll have to hang around you. I don't want to be like you. That doesn't appeal to me. Your life doesn't appeal to me. And you call everybody brother and sister. I don't want to be your brother. That's how I thought. And then I became one of them. And a new love developed for me. They're my brothers. They're my sisters. We're under the same Lord, the same fatherhood of God. And I discovered that the relationship that I had with these new brothers and sisters sometimes was such a close bond, it even transcended natural relationships. As Jesus said, Who are my mother, my brothers, my sisters? Whoever hears and obeys the word of God, the same is my mother and my brother. And I found that sometimes I developed such an intimacy with brothers and sisters in Christ that I had never known with my physical brothers. I had no sisters, my physical brothers, or my mother or father. Whole new relationship transformed. New status before God. New relationship with other Christians. I also got a new view of sinners, of people, of people without Christ. I looked at them differently. I didn't necessarily say, oh, he's really cool. I thought, is he going to heaven? Is he going to hell? What are they like eternally? It's not just boss or secretary or fireman or police officer, but they are souls for whom Christ died, and I felt very differently about them. Everything was new. Why? Because now I'm in Christ. Before I was... Without Christ, that's how the Bible describes an unbeliever. They were without Christ, without hope in this world. 
So what is a Christian? Somebody who's in Christ. Is it a perfect person? No, it's somebody who's in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're justified. He treats you with the righteousness of His Son. Wow. As a Christian, don't lose sight of that. Keep your life simple. Keep your life centered on Jesus Christ. I watch Christians as they grow. Sometimes they don't grow in grace. They get more complicated. They get weirder. They latch on to some doctrine and they go overboard with that doctrine and they align themselves with Calvin or Arminius, anybody but Jesus. Keep Jesus at the center. Listen, if you take Christ out of the Christian, you've got nothing. You've got nyun. Because there's no Christian, it's just nyun. So keep Christ at the center of your life. And be satisfied with Him. Keep it simple. The simplicity that Paul spoke about of being in Christ. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself. We discussed that at communion a few weeks back in this chapter. Through Jesus Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling, changing the relationship. That's what the word means. Catalasso. Reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, by nature, you are not reconciled to God. You are separated from God. You are at enmity with God. You might say, well... I'm not yet a Christian, and yet I'm not at enmity with God. I have nothing against God. That's not the issue. God has something against you. Your sin separates you from a relationship with God. God has to deal with your sin. Either He's going to deal with your sin on you and judge that, or He's going to judge your sin on Jesus Christ. But that's your choice. So when you say, I want... I want to trust in Christ for my salvation. And you ask Jesus to forgive your sins. God takes your sin and places it on Christ. He imputes your sin to Christ and imputes Christ's righteousness to you. So the sin barrier has been removed. So we implore people, hey, are you reconciled to God tonight? Are you and God close? Is sin separating you and God? Be reconciled to God. Have an intimate, personal relationship with Him. And this is how it works. All of that is summed up in verse 21. For God, He made Him, who that's Jesus. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, God treated Jesus as if Jesus had committed every single sin ever committed by mankind. God treated Jesus with all of the sin of mankind so God could treat you like Jesus. That's called substitutionary death, vicarious atonement, whatever theological term you've learned and want to apply. It's substitution. 
That's how God can treat you like this because He treated Jesus that way on the cross. Your sin was judged at the cross. God made Him who was sinless. He didn't deserve any punishment. But God treated Him as if He did deserve it so He could treat you who deserve the punishment like Jesus. That's love. We then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Again, I get the impression that um, not everyone appreciated Paul the Apostle. For he has to plead not to receive the grace of God in vain. It seems that there were people then, as there are people now, who have a real difficulty with the grace of God. You know what grace means, unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. God gives it to you, freely loves you, not based upon you or your works or your goodness because you don't have any that's, that merits God's favor towards you. But He freely does it because of His nature and what He's done with Christ on the cross. And so God can confer so wonderfully, so lavishly unmerited favor. People have tro- trouble with that. Legalistic people have trouble with that. You've got to earn your way. You've got to work your way. You've got to maintain and, and strive hard to walk that narrow walk, to stay focused so that God will love you. Hey, if God loved me when I was his enemy, while I was a sinner, did that ever change? No. So does God love me less if I didn't read five chapters a day in the Bible or pray? as long as I did last week, when I really felt I needed to? No. God still loves me. Now, again, I I understand people can take that and run with it and go, oh, well, if God's that good, I won't do anything. I'll just let him love me as an imperfect, filthy person. If that's your attitude, you probably haven't been touched by God's grace. Because the, the interesting thing, once you come into relationship with God, you want more. You want to please him. It's like when you first dated your husband or wife and you just wanted to be with each other and do things to please the other person because a relationship was there. But legalists then as legalists now have a hard time with just the grace of God. There were also Gnostics. I mentioned them and I said I'd get back to them. Gnostics, gnosis or gnosis, the Greek word knowledge. These were the, the know-it-alls, literally, of the first century. The Gnostics developed a system because mankind was sinful. They said God could never have created mankind or the material world because the material world is stained with sin. Thus God, who is holy and separate from sinners, never could have created mankind nor this physical material world. So they said God created emanations. Emanations went out from God. Hundreds of them, thousands of them. One went out so far from God that that emanation didn't even know God and it was that emanation or that God that created the earth and human beings. Jesus, said the Gnostics, was a phantom. 
And they had all these weird, fanciful stories that when Jesus walked on the sand, he didn't leave footprints, and just weird, extra-biblical stories as such. Jesus wasn't enough for the Gnostics. You needed more. The simplicity of a relationship with Christ won't cut it. You need this special knowledge that we have. You need to be initiated into our group. And so they had real trouble with Paul the Apostle who was reinforcing the grace of God through the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Christ. So he's pleading with the Corinthians. He knows that these people are in the church influencing them. And he pleads with them, don't receive the grace of God in vain. I've discovered something about religious people. Religious people are the hardest people to witness to. Because they see no need. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus Christ and how to come into a personal relationship with God through Him. Don't need that. Been religious all my life. You see, I've gone to this church or that church and I've been baptized and I've done this and I've done that. Very difficult to speak to those who are just dyed in the wool, especially the traditionalists. I'm saved by my tradition. I'm proud of my tradition. These rituals have sustained my mother and my father and my grandparents. They're good enough for me. So you find religious people are not often open to the gospel. That's why America needs to hear the gospel again and again. Because there are many cultural Christians, but not converted ones. I was that way. A friend of mine told me about Jesus. The night before, he had gone to a Christian concert in a tent out in California. On a Saturday evening. Now, that Saturday afternoon, we had smoked marijuana together in his bedroom. You know, we were, we were good pagans. We were dyed-in-the-wool heathens. We were all American kids. That night he went to this meeting, came back the next day beaming, and said, you need Jesus, Skip. I said, I need what? Don't you know that I've been raised in the church? I went to church today. How can you tell me I need what I already have? Obviously, you needed that. That's what you got. But I already have it. I didn't get it. I had religion. I didn't have Christ. There was no relationship there. And there is a big difference. And those of us who have been there know that. I remember sharing the gospel with my brother Bob. Bob wrote in the Hell's Angels in Cleveland, Ohio, and also out in California, and I tried to tell him about Jesus. I don't need that. I've gone to church. (laughs) Oh. So he pleads with the Corinthians, don't receive the grace of God in vain. In an acceptable time I have heard you. In a day of salvation I have helped you, quoting Isaiah 48. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The first qualification to get into heaven 
is to be poor in spirit, Jesus said, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit means that you admit you are spiritually poor, bankrupt. I can't do it on my own. I can't earn it. There's nothing I could ever do to merit what God will give me in salvation. So I come broken, poor, bankrupt. In other words, you have to be willing to bend low. That's called humility. That's why many religious people don't want to hear the gospel or refuse to get saved at first. They won't humble themselves and admit they're a sinner and admit that they need Christ. Over in the West Bank town of Bethlehem is an old church built by Constantine's mother, Queen Helena. It's an odd church. It's odd because the front door is about this tall. You know, usually churches that are the big ancient cathedrals have huge doors and often they swing on these big hinges and they make a lot of noise and a lot of pomp just to open these things. It takes several people sometimes. It's a little door about that big. So that in entering the church, you have to bow way down to get in. I think it's highly symbolic. It's the only thing I really like about that church is the door. (laughs) And as I was going through it last night, I said, man, it's hard to get in here. Didn't Jesus say something about hard or narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and very few there be that find it? You know why it's very few? Because very few will humble themselves and say, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And when's the time to do that? Now. Now is the accepted time. Today, now is the day of salvation. The Bible always speaks in the present tense. Oh, think about it. Do it now. Oh, I don't know if I'm ready. Oh, believe me, you're ready. Do it now. What? What are you going to wait for? I mean, heaven, hell. I don't know if I'm ready. But you go to heaven. Oh, I don't know if I'm ready for heaven. A gal told me that one time. I was witnessing on the pier in Huntington Beach. She said, I I don't know that I'm ready. I have a lot of questions. So I asked her, well, ask some of them to me. So she'd ask a few and I'd give them some answers. Oh, but I have more questions than that. I have many, many more. I said, tell you what, let's work out a deal. You pray and receive Christ right now because you know you need him. And you call me tomorrow. Here's my number. And I'll spend all day answering questions. But I don't want to answer anymore now. Let's pray now. You receive Christ. You bend low, go through that door. And then tomorrow we'll we'll spend a long time as you want answering questions. She goes, deal. I said, okay, great. So I explained the way of salvation more clearly. And I grabbed her hand and we prayed together. And as she prayed to receive Christ, she broke into tears. And as she wiped her tears away, she goes, you know, I just suddenly feel as if all those questions have been answered. I don't think we need to meet tomorrow afternoon. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry be not blamed. Now, verses 3 through 10, Paul will describe a variety of ministry experiences. Notice. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleepless nights, in fastings. 
There's a good curriculum for school of ministry. I remember when an assistant pastor came on staff and it was the first week he had ever been in, in, in the offices and he had this idea of what the ministry was going to be like and just all of these phone calls came in and problems he had heard and things he had seen in council and at the end of the day his head was spinning and I just put my arm around him and said, hey man, welcome to the ministry. <laughs> That's why it's called being a servant. Paul has the variety of experiences, some good, some bad, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Great. Now, what did he mean by that? That's a mouthful, right? So go back to verse 3. First of all, we give no offense in anything that our ministry be not blamed. One of the greatest obstacles to the Christian faith for unbelievers is the Christian. How many times have you heard, oh, there are so many hypocrites? The ministry is blamed. I don't want to be a Christian. I see how you Christians live. Now, I understand that some of that is a clever smoke and mirrors excuse to stay away from the issue of the willingness of one's heart. Unbelievers look for inconsistencies among Christians. They're looking for them. Their eyes are, ah, ah, did you hear about that? And they remember them all. On one hand, it's unfair. On the other hand, we give them lots of ammunition. And whenever we give them lots of ammunition, the ministry is blamed. Nathan came to David who committed adultery and said to David, Your sins have been forgiven, but by this deed you have given the Gentiles reason to blaspheme. The enemies of the Lord, a chance, a reason, an excuse to blaspheme God. Oh, I knew it. David and all these other kinds of God's people committing those kinds of sins. And unfortunately, it is ministers who give the ministry a black eye by their hypocrisy, by adulteries, etc. And again, they are remembered by the world. So we must be careful. We give no offense in anything that our ministry be not blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves as servants, ministers of God. In much patience, and I need patience. I think patience is one of those attributes, those characteristics, that fruit of the Spirit that is developed over time. Time and hardship. You can't buy a book on patience. I'm going to buy that tape series on how to be patient. It won't work. It won't work. You know what works? 
The Bible says tribulation worketh patience. It really says that, huh? Oh, it really says that. You may not have it underlined. It, it might not be one of those daily pocket promises. But it's there. You want to learn patience? It takes time and hardship. And God knows exactly what to do to me to get it. <laughs> he does for me to have it, not for him to get it. I can be impatient. The Lord knows that. When people talk, and, and sometimes they will explain their problem, and because I've heard problems like that and issues like that so many times, I can tell them what they're going to say. And I can think so fast and so far ahead of them that I would just like to stop them and tell them the solution. And I've tried that a few times. And as I tell them the solution, it's like they look at me and go, but I'm not done telling you the problem. And so they'll tell the problem, and I'll tell them the solution again, and then more of the problem. And so I have to just learn to be patient. And the, reason, the way Paul learned it is some of these other things. With much patience in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments. Paul could describe the jail cell of every town in the Roman world. It was like the Motel 6 for him. I think he just sort of went into towns and said, Could you just show me the jail first? I want to know where I'm going to spend the night tonight. Because invariably he would end up in these things. In tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness. See, you're not alone if you don't get sleep at night, if you toss and turn. Paul said he did. In fastings, probably not voluntary, probably imposed lack of food at certain times. All of these things in the ministry. Somebody once said that the pastor, the minister, will die the death of a thousand expectations. Everybody who comes to the congregation has at least one or a hundred expectations, many of which are impossible for the minister to fulfill. I've told you this before. Stanford University put out a study some years ago as to the expectations that the congregation wants for their minister. The questions were framed something like this. How many hours should he spend studying? How many hours should he spend visiting? How many hours should he spend doing hospital calls? How many hours doing administration, counseling, etc., etc.? They averaged them all together and found the average congregant expected the pastor to put in 135.5 hours a week, giving him 4.5 hours per day to himself. And that four and a half hours he needs to eat and spend quality time with his family and get a good night's sleep and do anything else. So they're, they're, they're unrealistic expectations. And Paul talked about the burdens of all the churches that he carried with him. And you can tell by some of the letters the expectations. Do you remember when God called Paul the Apostle? Who was the guy that was sent to Paul the Apostle in Damascus? Aeneas. And he said, go tell Paul, go tell him, he's in Damascus, he's praying, go tell him he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will reveal to him how many things he must suffer. Can you imagine hearing that? Saul of Tarsus? Yeah, that's me. I'm over here. God chose you. He did? Yeah, you're the lucky man. He chose you out of everyone. You're God's choice. For what? God chose you to suffer. Ooh. Couldn't he choose someone else? Ah, but the heart that had developed in this man. So evident in his writings. By purity, by knowledge, verse 6, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, these things were worked out in his life. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. What does that mean? Well, remember in Ephesians when Paul describes the armor of God? Stand therefore, he said, having your loins girded about with the belt of truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When a soldier would fight, in the left hand would be the shield and the right hand would be the sword. Defensively and offensively he was ready. Wherever Paul went through whatever experience of life, he was ready with the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit. Ready, prepared. God worked that out in him. By honor, by dishonor, verse 8, by evil report and good report. Some people love Paul. He's a great guy. He's a minister of God. Others gave him an evil report. He's an imposter. He's a fake. He talks big, but he's this short little nothing. He's not the only one. Of Jesus, they said he was a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In Athens, the philosophers of the Areopagus on Mars Hill said, Who is this babbler? Imagine calling Paul the Apostle a babbler. This proclaimer of foreign gods. In Caesarea, as he stood before Festus and Felix, They said of him, Paul, you're nuts, man. You're beside yourself. You're crazy. Your much learning is driving you insane. And you've been accused, maybe not of the same, but but similar, haven't you? Oh, you're crazy, man. You've gotten on this religious kick. You bring your Bible to work. What's, What's with you? What's that bumper sticker on your car? What are you bowing your head for at lunch? Are you nuts? Are you one of those fundamentalists? You get maligned. If you follow the Great Commission, you can expect the Great Opposition. If you evangelize, if you're vocal with your faith, if you live your life the way Christ wanted you to live, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution, Paul said. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, Jesus said. It's going to happen. 
If you follow the Great Commission, expect the great opposition. Or here's another formula. If you practice Acts 1.8, you can expect Acts 8.1. Acts 1.8 says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you practice that, Acts 1.8, you can expect, expect Acts 8.1. Acts 8.1 says, And a great persecution arose, and the church was scattered everywhere. There is a way to escape the opposition of the world. Don't say anything. Don't tell anyone you're a Christian. Don't let them find out. Be an Inspector Cluzo, secret agent. (laughs) Carry your Bible like this all the time. (laughs) Don't let them know. College student went away for the summer working in a logging camp up in Oregon. He was raised a Christian in sort of a cloistered, sequestered Christian home. His parents were so worried about this Christian kid being exposed to the world, how he was going to live his witness that summer, if he was going to fall away, or if he was going to stay true to the faith. And They waited all summer long. He finally came home. First question, son, how was it? How did you do with your Christian faith? And he said, oh, it was great. They never even found out. (laughs) That's how you can escape the distresses, the persecution, the heartache, just don't live the Christian life. But if you're an obedient, evangelizing Christian, you can expect this. And yet, notice, as unknown, some didn't know him and thought he was crazy, and yet well-known, obviously, before God and among the Christian churches, as dying, yet behold, we're still alive, as chastened and yet not killed, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's the paradox of the ministry. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. In other words, when you're persecuted, be happy. Jump for joy. That's what it literally says in Greek. Get really stoked. Why? Not because you're hurting, but because you're in good company. You stand in the company of Moses, who was maligned by his own sister and his own brother and his own people. You stand in the company of Jeremiah the prophet, who was put in a ditch in a mud hole. You stand in the company of Elijah, who the king and the queen maligned and tried to kill. They did the same to to the prophets. They did it to Jesus. You're in that company. But be careful. Be careful that when you're persecuted, you're persecuted for righteousness' sake because you're doing righteous things. You're saying righteous things. You're acting righteously. There's a big difference between being persecuted for righteousness' sake and being persecuted for weirdness' sake. You can act really goofy and flamboyant and draw attention to yourself and, and all in the name of Jesus do a bad job at the job because I'm called a witness to people, not work. And you'll be persecuted. But just because you're goofy, not because you're righteous. 
So make sure if you're going to get the ire of the world that it's because you live righteously. I once wondered if that was possible to do on a job in the secular world. I'd come to work Monday morning. And I was whistling one time, just humming a worship tune, not singing aloud, I love you, Lord. I wasn't doing that. Just, just a little hum, kind of a whistle. And my supervisor said, what are you doing? She knew I was a Christian. I said, excuse me? It's Monday morning. You're whistling. Don't do it around me. I said, all right. No, I didn't do it. I... <laughs> That's the fallen nature. (laughs) And I even told my boss, I said, the the director of the department, I'm going to work hard. I told him, I'm going to work harder than anyone else that you have working for you. That's how I got the job. I promised that I would do the best job of anybody in his department. He said, you got the job. Now I had to perform it. And I noticed that when I did, and I really tried to work hard, that the other people in the department hated it. I would do extra work. I'd stay a little bit longer. What are you doing? Trying to get points with the boss. Just trying to do a good job. Okay, I think we're about out of time. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things... O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. You are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children. He was their father in the faith, remember. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The big question is who them are who they is. Come out from among them. And we're going to have to, because we're out of time, finish that next week. (laughs) I love that. No! (laughs) We're hungry. We want more. But we do have commitments to children and to teachers, so we'll have to finish up on into chapter 7 for next time. Lord, even as Paul spoke to those congregants as unto children by a compassionate father who opened his heart wide to them, you have spoken by your Spirit to us as your children. How you love us, Lord. How could we ever doubt your love when you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself? not imputing their sins to them. 
making your son who is spotless and deserved all glory and adoration. You made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Treated him as if he had committed every sin ever committed so that you could treat us like Jesus Christ deserves to be treated. Lord, we're humbled by that. Lord Jesus, that you were treated like we deserve to be treated so that the Father could treat us like you deserve to be treated. Yet we realize, Lord, there was a sense of joy that was set before you that caused you to endure that cross even though you despise the shame. We can't doubt your love. Lord, I pray that in response, our love for you is that we do want to serve you. We do want to be in the ministry. And some of us, we have a ministry at home with children and husbands. We minister to them throughout the day. We impart love and truth to them. Some of us are behind a desk, Lord, and our ministry is to speak to those people when we have the opportunity. Lord, whatever, we all have a a vital role to play in this world. There's a reason we're still on this earth and not in heaven right now. And I pray that we might grab a hold of what that is and enjoy living for you every day. And Lord, we would also, as we close this service, pray for those who don't know you. And we plead with them, Lord, just like you are pleading through us, to them. Be reconciled to God. 